Reading from Mark, the fifth chapter, reading together, please. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse, and she had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. And Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? We will be finishing up Mark uh, chapter 5 today. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the fact that we can come and that you give us encouragement and strength from your word. And we ask for that this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I've had days just like that, by the way. So I know what that feels like. <clears throat> uh, many years I had, many years ago, I had the privilege of traveling to Myanmar, which is uh, used to be known as Burma, uh, primarily a Buddhist country. And everywhere we traveled, we saw barefoot men in orange robes, the, the monks, the Buddhist monks, and they were doing all the things that they normally are required to do. Um, at one point, one of the women from our group had wanted to really just try and share about Jesus, and so she had two of them that apparently understood some English, and she was sharing with them, and they were very politely listening, and, and uh, I remember at the end of the talk, she, she said, thank you for listening, and she reached out and gave them both a hug, which, you know, from our country, not a big deal. We found out later, however, that if a woman hugged a Buddhist monk, it meant he had to go through a really long process of purification. Uh, any woman that touched one of the monks would make them go into this process, uh, and so as a joke, I thought, well, you know what? We could really just do a hug-a-monk ministry and uh, make it our goal to kind of make sure they all have to go through these lengthy, pure... <laughs> I'm just kidding, but <laughs> I had never heard about that until I was there. Um, but you know what? The same thing was true in Jewish culture. The same thing was true of a situation we're going to be studying right now. If uh, someone was unclean and they touched someone who was clean then the person who was clean became unclean. Matter of fact, Jesus ran into this several different times. Remember in Luke 5, 12, a man full of leprosy came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Okay? Jesus could have just spoken the word, right? But he didn't. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, which nobody had done since he became a leper. And he said, I'm willing I make you clean. Um, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left. And guess what? Jesus wasn't unclean. And the leper wasn't anymore either. So that's the only way that this works that way. If it was any of us touched a leper, then we would be unclean. And we'd have to go through the process required by the law. So in, the, in this uh, little section of Mark that we've been looking at, we started out with Jesus in the storm and, and instantly bringing calm into a fierce tempest. And then, of course, we took, run into the man who's a demon-possessed uh, over in, in the, in the, 
in your Gadara, Gadarenes, and, and he's full of these violent demons, and he's subdued, and they're cast out, and he is a new man, totally, totally new as he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And of course, Jesus gives him the, the responsibility now, the task of going out and telling everybody he could find about what Jesus had done for him. Now today, we're going to talk about two different things. One, a woman who has an outcast because she is ritually unclean all the time. And then we'll see death being conquered just by a word and a touch. And so we see that as we get into Mark chapter 5 today. Now, Matthew and Luke also wrote about this, uh, these two things. But Mark is the one that gives us most, more detail than anybody else. Uh, twice as much information as Matthew. Uh, and so, as we go through this, remember that uh, Peter was Mark, John Mark's um, source. And so, what we're seeing here is we're hearing this and seeing it through the eyes of Peter. Uh, we always kind of have to think through and remember that. Obviously, the Spirit of God is guiding Mark as he writes as well, but he had that source. So, starting in verse 21, so when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. A large crowd gathered around him uh, while he was <clears throat> gathered around him while he was by the lake. So now, remember, he's gone back and forth across the Sea of Galilee a couple times. The last time as he was on his way over, that's when the storm hit. After the storm, they end up on the shore and they meet the demon-possessed men. And then they're coming back. So we're assuming that this is the coming back from there. Uh, that it's talking about. We don't know. The details aren't specific sometimes in that way, but it, we can make that assumption. And, and when he lands in Capernaum, again, we're assuming that's where he went back to, uh, the crowd's waiting. I mean, they are waiting for Jesus to come back. And so you've got all of these people. He, he can barely get out of the boat, and he's surrounded. I mean, he is surrounded by people who just want to be close to him and who want to hear what he has to say, and some of them want to be healed from whatever's going on with them. And so here the crowd comes and, and gathers around, and someone's able to get through all of those people and kneel down right in front of him, and that's a man named Jairus, and he was the um, ruler of the synagogue. So he was one of the men who was in charge of the synagogue. Again, we're not sure if it's in Capernaum or somewhere else. But he comes to Jesus, and it says that, um, verse 23, pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come, put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so understand, as he's coming, his daughter's deathly ill, and he's trying to get Jesus to come and do the one thing that, that can be done, which is to heal her so she can continue to live. Um, and so Jesus agrees. Now, picture this in your mind. This man comes, he kneels in front of Jesus. Jesus says, okay, let's go. He gets up. And so now you've got Jesus and this man walking side by side, the disciples kind of around them. And you've got a whole big crowd that's kind of moving along with him. You know, this is, this is not, uh, you know, a dozen people walking, going out for a walk. This is hundreds and hundreds of people that have surrounded him and wanting something from him. But Jesus is going with uh, Jairus to his home. And that's that's the scene. Now, one of the things that's interesting about that, Jairus being one of the, one of the guys who oversaw the synagogue, he was one of the synagogue rulers, was not a Pharisee. But the Pharisees and the synagogue rulers many times were, were good friends and people who counted on each other. And if you remember, there have been a whole lot of Pharisees and Sadducees and others coming to the area because of Jesus. And so when Jairus does this, 
made me kind of stop and think, I wonder if, he, if the Pharisees and others that have been around recently would want him to do this. Because they didn't like what Jesus did when he healed the man on the Sabbath. They didn't like what he did when he took the man and cast the demon out of him. It, you know, they, they accused him of some horrible things, including being in league with Satan. So that's the, that's the people who would have been close to Jairus, probably. And yet Jairus says, I've got a daughter who's dying. There's nothing else that can do anything. No one else that can do anything. I'm going to see this Jesus guy. And that's kind of the context, I believe, of what's going on in this scene. So here we go, all the crowd, Jairus and everybody's traveling along, going to his home. And in verse 25, everything gets interrupted. I love the way Mark does this, and it probably is the way it happened too. But sometimes Mark starts to tell a story and then dumps another story in the middle, and then he comes back to the story at the end. It's a good storytelling technique, but probably this is actually how it happened as they're traveling along. So as they're traveling along... A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she got worse. Now, suffered a great deal. Um, some people think that's referring to the doctors, and it, and it may on some level. But the other thing is it's probably referring to the fact that this condition, although it did not cause her to, to lose strength or to, or to lose her life, apparently was quite painful. It was something that she had to live with every day. One of the things that we know, she's, this has been going on for 12 years. And if she was married at some point and had kids, and then this happened, there's a good chance she was divorced and could not see her family. She was away from all of that. She couldn't come anywhere near. She's an outcast, just like a leper. I uh, was not allowed to come in, and if people knew her, they would treat her exactly how they would have treated a leper, in some cases throwing stones to chase them away and get them out of the way. So <clears throat> she'd suffered a great deal. She'd gone to doctors, um, and I came across a resource that had gone back and researched some of the remedies for this kind of a thing, and I'm telling you, they were horrible things that she had to go through, and um, still did, and none of them worked. So her only hope now, in her mind, is to see Jesus. Um, <clears throat> because she was unclean, stop and think what she couldn't do. Could not be with family, couldn't be with friends, could not worship anywhere there were other people. Um, she couldn't go into the synagogue, uh, couldn't have any kind of a normal social relationship with any other person. Uh, anyone who came in contact with her would also become unclean and would have to go through all of the rituals and things to make themselves pure again. So that really meant that she was kept at the very least at arm's length, if not further, possibly totally ostracized so that she had no way, um, no way of, of seeing family or being with family. Verse 27, it says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him. Now, one of the things we need to discuss to kind of think about here is, um, <clears throat> from what I've discovered and read, there, the thought is that she wasn't from that area, or everybody would have known her and understood what she was, and then walking through the crowd would have caused her a lot of, lot of pro problems. Um, matter of fact, church historically, or, or church tradition says that she was actually from Caesarea, heard about Jesus and thought, I've got, I've got to go, this is the only hope I've got. 
So she came looking for Jesus. And she sees him and sees the crowd around him. And, and this is how desperate she is. She pushes through all of the people. I mean, just whatever she has to do to get up close to Jesus. In her own mind, she'd already decided, you know what? All I have to do is touch his garment and, and I'll be healed. This man has that kind of power. And so that's exactly, <clears throat> exactly what she did. She got up close, um, touched his garment, and it says she knew instantly that she had been healed. Which again makes us think about the fact that had she been in chronic pain all along, now the pain is instantly gone, and she knows it's over. <clears throat> anyway, so here she is in the middle of the crowd, and now she wants to just kind of slink away as if it had, nothing had ever been, been done here. She's thankful, I'm sure, but she doesn't want to become the focus. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does, because Jesus turns around and he says, Who touched my clothes? Uh, minds, minds me of my daughters when they were in the back seat. Don't touch me. And now they're going back and forth. <clears throat> Jesus says, who touched my clothes? And it's, the disciples have that kind of a reaction, don't they? Well, I mean, look around you, Jesus. You're surrounded. Who touched you? What a silly question. They didn't say that, but that's, I'm sure, was going through their minds. And yet Jesus just stood there and said, who touched me? <clears throat> it's interesting. Um, he just kept looking kept waiting. Verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling and with fear, told him the whole truth. So here she is, kneeling before Jesus. She's been healed, but now she has to tell him and the whole crowd who she is, why she came, and all of that kind of a thing. And you can imagine some of the people thinking, oh man, she touched us. Because that's the reaction they would have had. Except for, she's not that way anymore. Now she's, she's absolutely okay. Um, and, and it's one of those things that, that when you think about what Jesus did here, you think, well, was he being mean or was he trying to do something more? And uh, I, I really think what Jesus was trying to do was to say to her, listen, there's no shame in what just happened. There's no shame in this. I know you've had this disease for 12 years, and that's been a shameful thing for you. But that's done. That's over. And having her tell her story, can you imagine? She's telling her story in front of all of these people, and yet Jesus wanted that truth from her. And, and look at what he says. This is so wonderful. She tells him all of these things, tells him about the disease, and how she's unclean, and, and how you know she pushed her way through the cloud, and everybody she touched was unclean. And she was just desperately hoping to get away, but no, Jesus said, no, come. <clears throat> and he says, love these words, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. That incredible. Talk about words of life. That's that's just incredibly powerful. And he's speaking to her, and everybody's hearing. And I love the fact that he calls her daughter, and then lets her know you put faith in the right person. You put faith in me and you are healed. And then go in peace, be freed, 
or be healed from your suffering. I love the way he uses his words to encourage her. Um, I, I do wonder what people around were thinking <laughs> as there's this conversation going on. And of course, Jairus is sitting there saying, hey, my daughter's not getting any better. Um, <clears throat> but he's just waiting. And so, you know, Jesus is saying to her, it's, it's okay. Yeah, I'm calling you daughter for a reason. And I want you to, when you go, go in peace. Your suffering is over. Actually, different translations translate that different. It was be healed from your affliction, be healed from your disease. But the reality that was being said was, this is over for you. You do not have to worry about it any longer. It's been taken care of. And I came across this quote that I thought was really helpful because I think in that statement, <clears throat> your faith has healed you, go in peace. Jesus is saying something very powerful. The word peace here means not just freedom from inward anxiety and fear and all the things that you normally would go through. The word peace means wholeness or completeness of life that comes from being brought into a right relationship with God. A whole lot more happened for this woman when she touched Jesus than just being physically healed. When Jesus says, go in peace, he's saying, it's okay. We have a relationship now. You have a relationship with God, and, and your sins have been forgiven. There's an implication here. Um, the Christian Standard Bible says it this way. Daughter, verse 34, Daughter, he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Be healed from your affliction. Incredible. My favorite verse of the whole passage Here's some observations about what we just went through. First of all, Jesus called her daughter, and he didn't do that for anybody else in all of Scripture. Okay? So he speaks to this woman, and he says, daughter. On one level, that's a, there's a sense of relationship in that statement. What he's saying to her is that we have a relationship now that we did not have. <clears throat> you and I are related and, and that's why he called her daughter. Second thing, she came for physical healing, and she got that. But she got the other side of it, too. She was healed spiritually. She was able to, to understand that by faith. And, and all those things coming together in a way that Jesus was able to say, go in peace, you've been healed. And then she had faith in the right person. Again, this is one of those things where, you know, she wasn't, Trying, she tried all kinds of things and none of them worked. And she heard about Jesus and said, this one will. This will work. I'll travel wherever he is. I'll find him. And I'm going to go there and, and ask him to heal me. And so she had put her faith in him, put her faith in Jesus. And he is the one who was able to heal her and save her. Go in peace. Your peace with God. Go. It is Okay. And then be freed from your suffering. Physical healing was permanent. When Jesus declared this, um, your faith is healed, you go. Be freed of your suffering or, or be over with all of these things. Um, he declared that, and that meant she didn't ever have to worry about it coming back. Whatever it was, was gone forever. So a whole bunch of things for me stood out here. One is she's no longer an outcast she no longer had to stay away from people. If she still had family, she could go be with family again. 
Um, she could now return to her home, if she had a home, or return to the people that she lived with before all of this. Twelve years. Twelve years have gone by. And she's no longer an outcast. She has peace with God, and she has been justified by faith. And Romans 5.1 came to mind for me as I was reading this and reading him say, <clears throat> Go in peace. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's one of the cool things we see in that passage is him saying, go, go in peace. All right, let's jump in 35. So Jairus has been standing there waiting. Uh, this whole thing takes place with this woman. Who knows how long that takes? There's a period of time, obviously, that goes by. Um, we don't know how far from the shore where Jairus met Jesus to his home, how far that is. We don't know if it was in town or if they had to travel half a day to get there. We, there's just no sense of that here. But while Jesus was still speaking and taking care of this other situation, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, uh, synagogue ruler, and said, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And again, you hear that, and, and um, we don't know how it was said, but it seems kind of blunt. Uh, maybe even uh, a little unkind. Maybe this was some of the religious leaders who didn't want him to go. We don't know, but a couple of men came. See, so your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher. <clears throat> I love what Jesus does. Uh, it says that he ignored them. Um, and <laughs> what this word really means is he refused to listen. They come up and they start to talk. And as far as Jesus is concerned, they're not saying anything. And he turns away from them, and, and he, nothing they say matters. Because Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Now remember, he had asked Jesus to come and heal her so she wouldn't die. Now she's dead. Now we're talking a whole different miracle that has to happen. And I love the fact that Jesus says, don't, don't be afraid. It's okay, just believe. And so Jesus ignored the guys, said to Jairus, come on, let's go. And verse 37, he did not allow, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. So remember, they've been in this huge crowd of people surrounding Jesus. All of the disciples are there and all these other people. And at this point, Jesus says, now I'm going with him and these three guys. And maybe he tells the other disciples, don't let anybody follow. But for some reason, now the crowd is done. They're not going any further than that point right there. How that all happened... I don't know, but Jesus made it happen. And um, he dismissed the crowd, and he and Jairus and the three disciples and maybe the other two guys that had come to give him the message are the ones that head on up to Jairus' house. Verse 38, and, and this is one of those things there that's really interesting to me. They come to the home of the synagogue ruler, and Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing louder, loudly. Um, Another way of translating that is Jesus heard the uproar. I mean, this was loud. Um, in Jewish culture, when someone died, you were supposed to have um, a number of people who were professional mourners. People were there to help other people wail, uh, help other people just let loose with their emotions and, and be loud about it all. And so the fact that they came, and that was already happening, okay? They had already said, she's dead, let's get the mourners over here, and the mourners come, and neighbors and who else are on the area, and now we, we've got a funeral to do. That's what's happening when Jesus arrives at the house, 
Okay? So Jesus arrives. There's all of this loud commotion, all this loud things going on. <clears throat> and he saw the commotion, verse 38, people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said, why all the commotion? Why all the wailing? Well, he knew. But on one level, he, he made them stop for a second and answer um, and think. He said, you know, what's, what's going on? This, this child isn't dead. Now, again, think about that. Professional mourners and most of the people in town know when someone's dead. They also know when someone's just sleeping. And um, they knew this little girl was dead. That's why they brought the mourners. That's why they got the process started to uh, have the funeral. And so he says, she's, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And look at verse 40. They laughed at him. They laughed at him. And, and the phrase here is a laugh of ridicule. So they're looking at Jesus, who has done so many incredible things in that area of Galilee, and all they can think of was, how dumb is this guy? We know what dead looks like. And Jesus says, okay, get out. Just think, they had a chance to see this little girl come back to life. But because of their attitude, Jesus said, I'm sorry, you're not in here. And so the only people that got to stay were mom and dad and the three disciples, and everybody else was totally out of the room. So they all go out. He took the father and mother and the disciples. They went in. <clears throat> Verse 41, he took her by the hand and said to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. How awesome is that? And, and, and the reality of is, verse 20, 42, immediately the girl stood up and walked around. Now think about healing. When Jesus healed people, he didn't, in, in almost all of the cases, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to heal you part way and we'll let you get better the rest of the way. He said, I'm going to heal you. Boom. You were really sick, now you're okay. You were blind, now you're not. And so he comes to this young lady, and he didn't bring her back to the point where she was still sick and possibly dying. He brings her back to full health. And she gets up, and she is running around, and Jesus gives the best advice he could. Don't tell anybody the details that went on here, but feed her. She needs to eat. And that's it. The whole thing kind of takes place in that kind of a setting. Um, and, and I just absolutely love it. <clears throat> I wonder if maybe the disciples weren't asking another who is this question. They'd seen him heal, they'd seen him uh, do all kinds of things, but when he calmed the storm, remember what they said, who is this that the water and the wind listen to him and obey him? I wonder if they weren't thinking, who is this that the dead come back? Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody the details, but please feed this young lady. Just some observations as a takeaway. Um, the first one, faith opens the door to the power of God. <clears throat> faith opens the door to the power of God. So you think about this, our faith many times can be imperfect, it can be bold, it can be kind of not all strong and, and powerful. Maybe there's fear in, in our faith. Um, what made this faith effective is that it was directed towards Jesus. And, and, and again, thinking about faith opens the door to, to the power of God. Remember the, the father of the demon-possessed son. And um, 
the demon would do horrible things to toss the, the this young man into the fire and other things. And he comes to Jesus and he says, would you heal my son? If you, if you are willing, something like that, um, you know, can you do something? And Jesus said, of course I can. But you have to believe. And the man said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I have prayed that many times. Lord, I believe this. I believe you can do this. But help my unbelief because I have doubts. I have worries. I have fears. So, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so, you know, the woman touches his clothes. And what does Jesus say? Your faith has made you well. Second one. Faith shows persistence in overcoming obstacles. Think of the woman. I mean, she had to find where Jesus was, first of all. She finds him, and then she sees this massive crowd, and she thinks, well, I guess I better get there. And so she starts pushing and shoving her way through and getting people out of the way, and she gets right up to Jesus and touches his robe and instantly becomes the focus of everybody, which (laughs) wasn't what she wanted, but Jesus did heal her. So the woman, she does that. Think of what Jairus had to go through. There's a persistence here, too. First of all, he had to come to Jesus um, when he had people, I'm sure, telling him, you don't want to do that. You know, you're a ruler of the, you know, of the synagogue. But he went, and Jesus said he'd come, and then his daughter dies. And they say, hey, don't bother him any further. And yet, Jesus said, keep on believing, let's go. And so he had to continue to believe and, and, and persisted in saying, okay, I... Jesus, you're the one, the only one I can trust. Third one, faith is embodied in action. Uh, Belief about Jesus wasn't enough. Uh, It wasn't just belief. It was putting something into action. It was walking through the crowd and touching. It was taking Jesus home to see the daughter. Think of the four men. What would have happened to the four men with the paralytic friend? Had gone into his house, and there he is laying on the thing, and he just talked about how wouldn't it be cool if Jesus healed him? And didn't do anything. Okay? And that's the thing. They had faith that Jesus could do it, so they picked him up, and they said, let's go do this. And they couldn't get to Jesus, so they went up on the roof, they took the roof apart, and they put him right down in front of Jesus. That's faith in action. And that's the kind of thing that we're seeing in this passage. Both the woman and Jairus put their faith into action by moving forward. And then the fourth one, faith is driven by belief that Jesus is sufficient to meet the need. Jesus is enough. He's all that's needed. And, and, and both the woman and Jairus understood that Jesus is the one that can do this. And if he can't, then there is no hope. And yet their faith drives them to go to Jesus and they are believing that he is enough. He is sufficient to handle any situation. And by the way, when we get saved, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, what are we doing? We're praying and believing that he is sufficient to take care of our sins once and for all, to forgive us and make us his children. He is sufficient. He is more than enough to meet the need. Hebrews 11.6 came to mind as I was finishing this study last night. Now, without faith... It is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Isn't that awesome? <clears throat> this woman, this outcast, 
believed that it was worth going to see Jesus and putting her all of her hope in him. Um, she couldn't in any way approach him if it wasn't for the fact that she had faith. She believed that he could actually do what he said he would do. And, and I know Hebrews is talking about us coming to him in the sense of believing in him and coming to him for salvation. And yet there's that sense in, that these guys also had to do that. Is, do I believe he can do it? Yeah, okay, then I'm going to step out and do it. And I'm going to trust that he will do what only he can do. And so they believed Jesus had the power to do what they were asking him to do. They put their trust in the only person who was able to do anything about it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the examples that are there. We thank you for the fact that you are that kind of God, a God that is compassionate, a God that is full, full of love, full of encouragement, a God that looks on the things that we do and, and when we confess, wipes them away forever. Wow. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are always enough. You are more than enough to meet any need. And so we praise you and we worship you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. We're going to transition now to communion. We're going to do something a little different uh, with communion. Um, We're going to stop at various places and give you a chance to just think and to meditate and and to think through some things. But I want to just share some verses with you. Uh, before we move into that part, um, Colossians 1, 13 through 14, I've been trying to re- re-memorize verses that I've, uh, that I've lost. And, and I was working on these verses. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. What incredible. You want a really kind of a miniature statement of the gospel? There it is. He rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. How? By sending Jesus to die. When Jesus died, Jesus purchased our freedom and he forgave our sins. That's what his death was all about. Philip says, for this, it is by his son alone that we have been redeemed and have our sins forgiven. Um, <clears throat> and I just was thinking of that just that little verse and, and how powerful and how much it tells us and how if I was going to memorize one thing that would give me a whole bunch of hope, it would be exactly those two verses as I look at them now. He rescued me from the kingdom of darkness and transferred me where into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he purchased, purchased my freedom and forgave my sins. That's powerful. When it comes to communion, um, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all share the one bread. And on one level, Paul was just writing to them in in chapter 11. He'll give them a lot more details about the Lord's Supper. But just thinking about this, as he's, as he's saying to them, we have a, we have bread and we have a cup. And those are things that we take together. And it's how we remember the Lord. It's a cup of blessing. Uh, And, and when you look at it, I think what what he's saying is the blood of Christ is a blessing. The blood of Christ is what was paid for our sins. 
And so when we think of communion, we think of the cup, we should be thinking of all of the blessings that came with the death of Jesus and our salvation. And, uh, and then he talks about sharing in, in, in the one loaf. And for me, every now and then, it's important to remember that as we do this here this morning, all over the world, this is being done. It's being done in closed countries where they may have to do it in their back, in the back room of the house, hidden from anybody. It's being done in big, huge places. It's being done in all kinds of languages and all kinds of cultures. And so when we do this, we are joining thousands, maybe millions of others who are also doing and celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, let's, uh, let's go ahead and go to the next one real quickly. Uh, again, this is just from uh, the NIV, a little different translation. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is it not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And so again, he's saying these things are symbols and we partake of them. Um, this is what they mean. <clears throat> and then... Um, because they are one loaf, we who are many are one body. And so again, just think about the fact, as we have prayed for the kings, why? Well, we are one with them and with the churches that they have planted. And so they celebrate the same kind of thing as we do right here. Now, I was thinking about this week. Many times I talk about how the, the Lord's Supper, how communion is basically a remembrance, a time to remember and to think back and, and to look at what Christ did and what he suffered and, and all that he went through with us. And I think that's an accurate statement. It is a memorial service in that way. Um, but I think it's more than just a memorial service. I came across this this week as I was studying. It's not just a memorial in the sense of memory. It's also a communion with Christ. Okay? Think of that word communion, but not in the sense of taking the Lord's Supper. Think of it in the sense of what does the word mean to commune? And it means there's a unity, there's a closeness, there's relationship and intimacy. So as we take communion, think about what communion means. It means unity, closeness, relationship, and intimacy. Together, yes, and together with the body of Christ all over the world, who are also taking part in communion in that way. So <clears throat> as we take the bread and as we take the cup this morning, let us think about the fact that there's a whole lot more to it than just remembering a body broken and bloodshed. It is all of that, absolutely. But there's also, it's a unity, closeness, relationship, and intimacy with the Lord and with all of our brothers and sisters as we take part in it. I'm going to pray for the, the bread, and if you haven't picked up a little cup, go ahead and feel free to do that at any point. And um, we're going to pray for it, and then we'll sing. And then at the, after we sing, I'm going to have Daniel play, and we're going to take a few minutes to just think, just contemplate. And you can read some verses yourself, or you can just pray however you want. We're going to give you some time there to just consider and to meditate on, on what we're doing this morning. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for the power of your word. We thank you for that. In your word, we are given this wonderful ceremony, this wonderful communion that we can share in. And so, Lord, as we do take this bread, help us to be remembering the fact that you died for us. We commit this into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.
free to join singing if you would like. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused Him contemplate whatever you'd like to for a few minutes.
Let's uh, go ahead and read this verse together before we take the bread. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We take the bread of memory of our Lord Jesus I'm going to go ahead and pray for the cup, and then we'll sing again and do what we just did with the time of meditation. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that uh, when it was blood that needed to be shed, you were willing to do that. We thank you that we don't have to offer sacrifices, because you were the perfect and the last sacrifice that was ever needed. Because you were, what you did on the cross is sufficient and more than enough to pay for our sins. And so we thank you and we praise you for that. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame and I love that old cross where the demons stand past for a world of lost sinners was saved so I'll cherish the Sanctify 
Let's go ahead and read these verses together before we take the cup. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. We take the cup in memory of our Lord Jesus. We're going to close with a song that we don't do very much or haven't done very much. Um, But this is a song that when I was about nine or ten, and we only sang out of the Blue Hymn Book at our church. This was number 100 in the Blue Hymn Book. And this is the song that I got a chance to give it out. This was the song I was going to give it out. So let's stand together and sing this as we close our service this morning. Let's sing together. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus Since I found Him in a friend so strong and true I would tell you how He changed my life completely He did something that no other friend could do No one ever cared for me There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. 
All my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms around me. And he led me in the way I ought to go. But let's sing the third verse. Every day he comes to me with new assurance. More and more I understand his words of love. But I'll never know just why he came to save me. Till someday I see his blessed face above. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. words, right? Uh, as we leave this morning, let's uh, take that thought. No one ever cared for me like Jesus was. Have a great week.